This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Some announcements that were made by the Ontario government. Now, if you've listened to the show over the last number of years, you know that uh, one of the my pet peeves, of course, is distracted driving. I, I see this all the time, people that are texting and driving on their cell phones, uh, holding them out in their hand there, thinking that's not hands-free. You're holding it with your hand. Of course it's not hands-free. Ridiculous. But the concern I've always had is that people are doing this, and we're seeing it with more and more frequency, because I think the fines that uh, that were in place and are in place today as we speak just aren't sufficient enough. They don't scare anybody. And uh, there's so many repeat offenders right now that clearly something had to be done. Well, yesterday the provincial government announced uh, new measures uh, for uh, this distracted driving phenomena, uh, epidemic, some people may want to call it. Uh, penalties for careless and distracted driving. New legislation says that a motorist convicted under these proposed offenses could face a fine of anywhere from $2,000 to $50,000, a license suspension of up to five years, and a loss of six demerit points. Uh, now, that's obviously one scenario. Uh, we have to talk about how just practical it is for the, and, and as to whether or not these things are actually going to be effective and if they're enforceable as well. Joining us to talk about this is Joseph Newberger, criminal lawyer with Newberger and Partners, LLP, and always a welcome guest on the program. Joe, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us this morning. Oh, thank you. Always a pleasure. Joe, let me ask you, first of all, your your uh, initial reaction when you saw the proposals from the Attorney General yesterday and the Transport Minister. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not against it. Uh, you know, as a citizen who drives on the roads, <laughs> like everybody else, we have issues with people being able to pay attention when they're driving, and we want a reduction in accidents. Uh, so I think it's legitimate. There are various areas under provincial legislation where fines for various offenses range from two or $5,000 all the way up to $50,000. So I think it can have a significant deterrent because most of the time motorists are people who are generally involved in work and they have families. And when you hit their pocketbooks pretty hard, that may have a very significant deterrent effect. Is this a response to uh, maybe the, the foot dragging that went on? Uh, the, you remember the attorneys general all met, of course, with their federal counterparts a couple of weeks yes. ago in Ottawa. Yes. Uh, and at that time, they asked for uh, destructive driving to be included in the criminal code. The feds pretty right. much said, yeah, we'll look into that, which means, you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Uh, yes. is, is, is Ontario trying to just jump the queue here and be proactive on this? I think so, and, and that's an excellent point you raised, because trying to add distracted driving under the criminal code makes absolutely no sense. We already have an offense under the criminal code called dangerous driving, and it's not restricted to whether you are using a cell phone or drinking a coffee. It's any type of conduct while you're driving, which is a marked departure from what you would expect from a safe, reasonable driver. And so that legislation is already in place, and if, God forbid, somebody was in an accident, as a result of significant um, reckless behavior because they're on a phone or doing various other things. It is always open to the police when investigating to lay a charge of dangerous driving. So that type of push to try and get the federal government to change or add uh, distracted driving under the criminal code, I think, was just simply a, a waste of time and not a very smart move. But the Ontario government now responding with increasing fines for careless driving restricted is, uh, or distracted driving is definitely in response to that, and I think it's probably a more effective move. Let me ask you about wording here, because I, I was intrigued by this when I saw the story yesterday, uh, and they, this new law that they're talking about, and that's how they classified it as a new law, it's going to be called careless driving causing death or bodily harm. And it, it, as, as you've just mentioned, isn't that already on the books? Maybe not in those specific words, but, but that's there already? Uh, it, it, it's 
within the provincial legislation, so under the Highway Traffic Act, it's not really clear. We've, we've had cases with careless driving causing death, and they are prosecuted very seriously. Um, but we have, under the criminal code, dangerous driving causing death. So if the situation is, again, a marked departure from a reasonable driver, it's resulting in the death of an individual. So, for example, you could have a high rate of speed, erratic driving, and then an accident where somebody dies. That's already covered under the criminal code. And if it's careless driving causing death, your point is well made. Is that really careless driving causing death, or is that dangerous driving causing death? So it may be rather duplicitous. And in trying to determine the legal test for careless driving causing death versus dangerous driving will be really very tough. I mean, I think you're going to be walking a fine line. And I would prefer to see careless driving remain the way it is. And if somebody has been driving in such a horrible manner that resulted in the death of another individual, most properly that investigation would result in a charge under the criminal code. Let me ask you about the the efficacy of, of these sorts of things. I mean, this obviously has made headlines. We're talking about it. They're talking about it all over the province today because of the proposals that were put forth by the government right now. Uh, and that $50,000 fine looks uh, pretty impressive. Like, boy, that's going to act as a deterrent. But in reality, Joe, how often, when, when these things go through the system, are fines of $50,000 actually meted out? Very rarely. I don't practice much in the Highway Traffic Act area, but I have a a partner in my firm who's a paralegal who does, and, and those high fines are rarely, rarely imposed. And then you would have to imagine it could only be imposed for somebody who is a repeat offender and the distracted driving was so significant that it would mandate such a high fine. So it would be really at the high end of incredulous conduct. So, I, you know, I think it, it's really something that would be applied extremely rarely. But having it on the books and and having a minimum of $2,000, that's significant. I mean, you know, when you look at what the studies have come out as to what average Canadians make across Canada from the last census, you know, you're looking at average uh, incomes of somewhere between thirty to 70000 depending upon an individual and a family. A two to $5,000 fine is a lot of money. And and they are moving in the right direction, to be sure. And, and you know, because, I, you know, this used to be a three-month suspension if you were caught. Back in those days, there was no distracted driving back in the 70s right. and 80s. But it was it was drinking and driving or intoxication, whatever the case might be. I think it was a, like a $200 fine. And, and I suppose in, in, you know, 2017 dollars, this is great. And it is, it's on the books, and that's a good thing right now. But you just mentioned about what goes through the court system right now. Uh, I've talked to a few folks in the legal community after this announcement was made yesterday, uh, Joe, that were rather skeptical that this is going to be effective because it's going to clog up the system even more, which is going to lead to an awful lot of, of, of pleading downs, and, and you know, it's, it's not going to have the desired effect. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, you look at it two ways. You're right. If people are charged, people have a right to uh, fight the charge, and there will be litigation especially if there, a high fine could be imposed with six points and if there is a suspension of a license because people need cars to work. So you'll have a significant amount of litigation. Will there be uh, resolution deals? Of course there will. But, you know, having it on the books may have some deterrent effect to those people who just don't want to take the chance. If they're thinking about it, you know, they may say, this isn't worth it, I'm going to just go hands-free or I'm not going to use my phone and text. So I think it may have some benefit that way. 
I don't think we'll have clogged courts as a result of it, though. What, what's going on? <laughs> Talk to me about the dynamic here. For all the years that you've been practicing, uh, yeah. when, when people basically are thumbing their nose at the existing law, I mean, distracted driving's been on the books here for quite some time. The numbers are going up right now. I, I know that we tried to equate it at some point to the seatbelt law back in the 1960s. I guess there are still some people that don't use seat belts, but over the passage of time, people seem to clue into the fact that yeah, that is actually a really safety measure. They don't right. se- they don't seem to be resonating. This law does not seem to be resonating. It's not it's not being embraced by people right now. What's going on here? Well, you know, people are people. It, you know, it takes time. When they're in the car, I think they have uh, a sense of uh, freedom and entitlement. Uh, different than you know other circumstances, and it's like, well, who's to tell me that I can't use my cell phone when I'm in the car? I'm driving. I'm a good driver. I don't have accidents. Why can't I use my cell phone when I need to? And the cell phone is used not so much now for frivolous purposes, but you're keeping track of kids. You're communicating with people in business, and so it really is an essential tool of work. And unfortunately, human beings are human beings, and it takes time to educate them and to try and hammer it into everybody's head that this is just like seatbelts. We can't have distracted driving because we don't want accidents. And it just takes time. And I think along with increasing penalties, it's also always important to make sure that we are educating young drivers, those who are coming into the age of driving, where we have strong measures in education to teach them about this, and that that will resonate also through education with current drivers. It just takes time. When police are enforcing the existing law right now, I mean, if they see somebody driving by and they're they're on their phone or they can, it seems obvious, pull them over, they get a ticket. Uh, and there's there's no, yeah. that that's it. And it's it's not a very important, it's not an insignificant amount of money. I get that, but but this is laying charges. This is altogether different. Uh, and as you mentioned, I, how difficult is it going to be right now for an officer to make that determination or a crown to make that determination that this is actually careless driving as opposed to somebody who's just being frivolous and ignoring the law? Well, uh, in other words, how often is this charge actually going to get laid? Well, distracted driving actually is laid quite quite a bit, as yeah. you said. We have we we have significant. I mean, that's not very hard to figure out, and, and and it's laid a lot. Careless driving. I mean, you have traffic officers who specialize in traffic units on determining um, the evidence sufficient to lay a charge for careless driving. They're not always successful, but there is a very high rate of conviction for careless driving offenses. Um, and uh, to make the determination between a careless and a dangerous driving is not easy, but officers are generally well-trained. It may require uh, more enhanced training for police officers to do uh, roadside investigations, to uh, interview witnesses, and if it involves an accident, you maybe require some accident reconstruction in order to make the right decision about laying the charge. And on the flip side of this as well is what we're talking about is resources, right? Mm, Because we hear also cutbacks in police services. There's been hiring freezes. So it's great for the government to talk about increasing fines and wanting to lay charges. But on the other side, you need to apply the resources to our police services and the infrastructure so that police can do the work that they have to do. Is there a jurisdiction around here that, that is doing this properly and, and is having the desired effect of, of reducing the number of people that are being charged and the number of incidents like this? It just seems as if we're chasing our tails here. Well, I, you know, I, I, I don't have uh, statistics from other provinces that I could draw on. But, you know, I'm on the roads quite a bit yeah. uh, in my business as a criminal lawyer. And, you know, I think by and large we generally have safe roads. The statistics are there, but I think we do have safe drivers. I think there is good education in place. It's just, in my opinion, going to take more time for greater education, enhanced driving programs for those who are coming into their driving years, and to give resources to police 
so that they're out there patrolling and they're able to apprehend. Uh, and, and that's a significant factor because our highways are big and long and, and far, and we need officers on the road to ensure that they can uh, protect public safety and lay charges where necessary. Do these fines or larger fines uh, act as a deterrent? Do they actually have that sort of an impact? I mean, anybody who anybody who speeds, anybody who drinks and drives, anybody who is distracted driving, let's face it, they don't think they're going to get caught. That's why they're doing it. Uh, but when they do, or, or is that, that thought about, my God, I can't afford a $50,000 fine, uh, does this actually, uh, when you see big numbers like this, act as a deterrent towards, towards uh, what you might consider to be nefarious activity on the road? I think so. And, you know, just, you know, anecdotally from my own practice where I've had some clients with uh, impaired related offenses, they were first-time offenders, and, and, and I, I have not had repeat clients in that regard. I think you're dealing with people who may be disregarding the laws at the beginning, but once caught and hit with a fine, I think there's a good majority of them who never want to repeat that offense again. So I think it does have an impact. Joe, thanks as always. Great having you on the program today. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Have a great show. You too. Joseph Newberger, of course, criminal lawyer with uh, Newberger and Partners, talking about uh, the proposed laws. Now, the government tells us they're going to be pretty aggressive about this. Uh, this is a majority government, and they say they want to get this done. Now, th- there is a process, of course. This is not going to go into effect today. It's got to go through first reading, second reading, et cetera, et cetera, probably go to committee. So it's going to take some time to do this, but there's a pretty strong likelihood that the government's going to do this before they break up, uh, maybe even for, for Christmas break or thereafter. So this is going to happen in, in, in due to course. This is going to happen. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Let's talk about the education program that's uh, been going on here. Of course, we know about the provincial testing that's happening. Nearly two-thirds of public school students have failed to meet the Ontario standards for grade 6 mathematics this year. Uh, this is a wide-ranging thing. It talks about not just math marks, but the math marks are of some concern because there seems to be a pattern, and it's not a very attractive pattern. Joining us to talk about this is Manny Figueroa, who is the Director of Education for the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board. And uh, Manny, first of all, thanks so much for the time. I appreciate you joining us today. Good morning, Bill. Thank you for inviting me. Let's, uh, let's get right to the, to the crux of the matter. We'll talk about the math marks. And, and I know both the Catholic Board and the Public Boards have been evaluated in this whole thing. Uh, the numbers aren't very encouraging. What's, what's going on, Manny? You've had a chance to look at some of these numbers. Yeah, Bill, you look at the numbers, and we continue to look at this as, you know, one important data set, and we continue to look at what's happened over the time with this key data set. We've set a a sort of ambitious target to try to improve in this area, but it's important to to position that this assessment is a reflection of how we're doing with the Ontario curriculum, but it is a snapshot in time. But what's interesting is if you actually look at the data, especially in grade six, we've seen we've gone up 1%, but what we try to track the data and look at it from a cohort perspective. So when we look back at the 12-13 and see that about only 48% met, that, met the provincial standard level three, that group is the group that wrote it in grade nine, whether they're an academic and applied. And when we aggregate that data, we see that that cohort now about 65% of the students once they reach grade nine actually met the provincial level. So we're wondering what's happening from the grade three assessment, the primary, and a drop in grade six. But then when they get to grade nine, we're seeing that when we follow the cohort, um, that they're making improvements. Um, So when we look at the data, we always have to look at it from, um, of course, we compare year to year, 
the, the cost of comparing year to year, it's a different group of students. But what's more important is what do we learn from this data that then drives what we're doing differently to try to get more students achieving at this level. So that's just one way where um, it's an important way to, to remind people of how do you track it and follow that cohort. And um, we're seeing that provincially students are improving by the time they hit grade 9, but we're seeing that locally as well. By the way, we should uh, mention, when we talk about a 1% increase over the last time this, uh, this evaluation was done, uh, that may seem somewhat abstract to some of our listeners. That's, that's about 30 students, and that's, that's not insignificant. No, correct. Like a co- When I speak about a cohort, you're right. It's, um, you always need to put the data in perspective. So 1% equates to about um, 30 students. Um, for us, it's, um, we say, well, we always want to work towards continuous improvement. And um, why, is it, why is it we can do uh, so much better in the reading and writing? What is it about the math that, that is, is challenging? And I think you've heard from the, the ministry uh, is actually asked to do a review of the math curriculum and um, also of the EQAO assessment. There's something there that um, that's a, it's a puzzle for people. For us, we say, regardless, it's an important data set. What is it we can learn around that cohort who just wrote? What are some trends, some strengths and areas of focus um, that are education to focus on? And then over time, if we look at the assessment over a three- to five-year window, what are some system trends and patterns that might be emerging that now guide us as we move forward? Um, we have to realize it is a snapshot in time, and EQA is one way that that students demonstrate their learning. It is a, perf- a performance task that is, you know, for lack of a better term, paper and pencil. And we do encourage our educators to provide students with multiple ways to demonstrate their learning, not just in paper and pencil. And by the way, I'm glad you used this uh, comparator here about uh, what's going on with the reading uh, and, and the writing. Because those numbers are actually doing just great. So this is not an, an overall educational problem. This it seems specific to mathematics. And, and again, I know that it's, it's trending a little bit more than it did a year ago, but, but there has been the, the ongoing concern, Manny, uh, that, that you're still well below the provincial average, and, and this is not a new problem for you. Now, I know that when you and I talked about this a year or so ago, uh, you said that the board was going to try to employ some strategies to try to improve those. What have you done so far uh, to, to, to try to uh, address these problems? You're right. A year ago, we talked about what's happening locally. So one of the things we looked at another data set. We know we have great educators in our school, but we said, um, "What is their background?" So when we look at many of our primary junior teachers, teachers teaching from K to six, um, a very small percentage uh, come uh, into that field, into teaching in the primary junior divisions with a math background. So what have we done locally? We said, well, we need them to invest in our people. Yes, the ministry is providing some funds for professional learning, but what can we do differently, lo- uh, different locally? We now are, um, our board is now a provider of additional qualification courses. So what does that mean? Um, typically, uh, teachers might have to go to a faculty to take additional courses. We uh, submitted an application, and we're now a provider um, from the College of Teachers to provide additional qualification course in, in um, mathematics part one and part two. As a result, our educators uh, have committed time. So last March and May was the first session we offered, and we have teachers coming in um, in the evenings, and we also had um, a session this summer. So, so far, about 75 educators um, have, have 
said, I'm willing to give up my time to build my knowledge and understanding uh, of the math curriculum. Okay, and that's and, that's uh, good, but let me ask you, put that number in perspective for me. You said about 75. Uh, it, how many, I mean, I would have thought that everybody probably thought, well, maybe I need the upgrade. Well, you don't want to make it mandatory, but I mean, is 75 a, a good turnout? Is it is it a smattering of people that probably should have been there? What's, what's your read on that? Well, I... Each each course we offer has a cap of twenty five people based on uh, um, um, what's required. So they've been full. So as a result of that, we said, okay, we need to get more trained instructors. And there's educators asking for math part two, which we now have been accredited to provide. We've looked at some districts across the province who um, who had engaged in this and been local providers. And why people want to participate locally? There's barriers to head out maybe to Toronto or to a different different place so we said we offer it locally with our locally trained people and we just offered it this year for the first time and what people are saying is if you offer it and we can offer at a better rate for people that they will come so um that's a local strategy we're going to continue to invest in and um and and i think it's going to pay dividends over time because we need to help educators feel safe and comfortable in teaching that math curriculum, if, especially if it's not a background. Well, and, and, like, and oh, that's we, a point worth making here, because I, I don't want our listeners to walk away with this thinking, well, they, we've got lousy teachers in Hamilton. That's not the case at all. But, but let's face it, when you're teaching at the elementary level, uh, we're at the Catholic or the public board, many, I mean, they're multitasking. And, and just like every other human being, they have strengths and weaknesses. And, and I'm, not, I'm not approaching this topic from any, uh, any academic high ground here, because math was never a strong subject for me, ever. Uh, all the way through school, uh, so I, I, I no one, and I can I can empathize with what's going on here. And there may be somebody who's a brilliant teacher, a great communicator, and has great skill sets, but maybe not that great at math. That doesn't mean they can't do it, but they maybe not be able to do it as well as somebody who has a propensity for that. And and that's that's a human reality that you have to deal with. Yeah, so absolutely, that is our reality. So as an as an employer, we say, how do we respond uh, to the needs of our staff? Um, our level at our, I would say, in terms of the leaders of the organization, we have to be able to respond to the needs of staff, which reflect the needs of students. And so what are we going to do differently? And we had um, a group of leaders said, well, we need to be offering this locally. And, and um, that has told us people will give up their time and have been, and they're asking for more. So uh, that's a great problem to have. But So now we need to respond to it. And, um, and um, so that's what we've done differently from a year ago when I spoke to you, uh, really respond to how we invest in our in our educators, because we do have fantastic educators and leaders in our schools. Let me ask you, there's another element to this. We've touched on the human element, of course, and, and, and it's gratifying to know that, that there are teachers that are saying, okay, I need to upgrade here, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. I'm going to take those courses and, and, and try to, to see what we can do about that. Let me ask you frankly about the curriculum itself, because there are some that are criticizing that and saying that maybe it's what we're teaching them, not who we're teach and not who's teaching it. Maybe the curriculum needs revision. Uh, is 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 that is that under the microscope as well? Well, it's a great debate, and you've heard it around. We got we have to get back to the basics, right? That's, so I'm I might be I'm fortunate enough to tell you that I actually did teach and did teach this curriculum when it first came out. And there's this myth that the curriculum is uh, totally problem-solving problem based and we're not teaching skills. The curriculum is a balanced curriculum. What, am, what do I mean by balance? Well, it is trying to teach students the, the, those skills. What are the procedural skills I need to know? 
And then it is pushing kids to say, okay, how do I now apply these skills in a problem-solving way to really deconstruct the concept, the concepts? Um, so the ministry is looking at that. And one of the things we do here at Times is there is there too much? Is there is there too much to cover in the curriculum? And uh, at times we hear from educators, uh, we know understand the balanced approach, but how do I cover it all? And I think the ministry is now going to be taking a look at what's essential to cover uh, in the primary junior grades in the math curriculum. And and we hear that from educators. So I, I'm glad that they're, they're doing a, a, re, a revision of uh, and a review of the curriculum because uh, we believe it's it's required. And I, I think that will give us a clearer focus. Is the reason that the grade nine scores go up higher is because at that level and in 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 secondary schools, Manny, that uh, that you tend to have people teaching the math courses who who do have that propensity towards mathematics? That's so. What's what's a fact is when you get to grade nine, yes, teachers who are teaching the math courses have to be qualified in math. But I would say it's not just in the grade nine year. You know, after grade six, if we've done a true analysis of our data and understand the trends, what are we doing in grade seven, eight, and nine? And in some cases, we do have uh, teachers in grade seven, eight um, who have more of a math background teaching. But we've done a really concerted effort to make sure our grade nine teachers and our seven, eight teachers are working closely around transitions and understanding the students and how to ensure that that you know what we're doing in math. Uh, is we're preparing them for what's expected in grade nine. I mean, that is one theory that people have more expertise um, in that area. Um, um, but so part of our theory was also then how do we invest it in, in our primary junior to give teachers those additional qualifications? And, um, and we hope that'll pay off over time. Got a professional activity day tomorrow for the the public board. Now, uh, obviously, you've got these numbers in front of you right now. Uh, how would you plan to tackle this? I mean, obviously, you've started some programs a year or so ago, Manny, and you've already outlined uh, what you've been doing so far. Uh, these numbers indicate that there has been some progress, but clearly not as much as you'd like to see. So what are the next steps here? Well, that's exactly right. Tomorrow's professional um, activity day, and our educators, uh, led by our principals and vice principals, will be unpacking the data. So we've provided each school their data, but we also tell them, reminder, you need to compare the EQAO data to the other data sets that teachers have in front of them, the day-to-day assessments they're doing, and try to understand what are the comparisons and gaps. Uh, because then we ask our schools uh, to, to set targets. And we say, just don't set an arbitrary target. We set targets based on knowing our students. So let's, so after tomorrow, schools will develop their um, review their plans and then setting a, a target around mathematics that actually incorporates an EQAO target. Because we know if we set targets and work towards them, but, uh, we're likely going to get improvement, but we have to make sure it's not just one data set in isolation. Because our professionals know our kids, they have observations, and they have other assessments they get, that they will bring to the table tomorrow as well. It's uh, interesting to, to see how the boards are going to wrestle with this and deal with this, obviously. And uh, uh, this is not a, a unique Hamilton problem. I know that there are other jurisdictions that are dealing with this as well, uh, which uh, obviously begs the question about how the province is going to do their assessment, the Ministry of Education, with uh, the curriculum in and of itself. Uh, Manny, I know it's a challenging time for you and for the Catholic Board as they uh, uh, try to go through, sift through, through some of these numbers and try to determine what's going to happen. Uh, good luck with this tomorrow, and uh, thanks so much for the time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. Take care. That's uh, Manny Figueroa, of course, who is the Director of Education at Hamilton District uh, Board. It, it is troubling, and, and I don't want to paint this picture that you know the, the kids on our, our Catholic and public boards here are, are, are bombing, because they're not. 
Uh, the marks in, in many of the areas are actually quite good, but just not in math. And what's most troubling about that, of course, is when you talk to you know future employers and some of the innovators and, and some of the startups these days, uh, an awful lot of that is math-oriented. You know, and and actually, you can kind of you know dovetail this conversation into things like coding and everything as well. And we're falling behind other jurisdictions in the world. And this is a global economy, so you want to make sure that our kids are going to have the proper tools to make themselves employable and contribute, to, of course, to their their lifestyles and their economies. And and math is going to be a part of that, whether you like it or not. So something's got to happen to try to improve these scores. We'll stay on top of this, though, and let you know what, uh, what goes on with both boards over the next couple of weeks and months. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, Hamilton City Councilors have decided to deal with complaints about historic statues and artwork uh, that some may find objectionable on a case-by-case basis. There was an attempt, uh, I guess, by Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger to uh, ask staff to develop a policy on this. Uh, it went back and forth uh, among a number of councillors, and uh, they just decided to back off on the whole thing, for the time being, anyway. Uh, among them was uh, Ward 8 Councillor Terry Whitehead, who joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, give us some perspective on this. Terry, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. It's wonderful to be with you, Bill. I, I suppose, Terry, that uh, in light of what's happened in Charlottesville and a number of other cities uh, right across North America, uh, it was inevitable that you guys were going to have to deal with this at some point. Well, you know, like they say, uh, if the United States sneezes, we got a cold. So clearly, um, the trends, uh, uh, actions that are happening in, in the United States has uh, now shown its uh, ugly head here in, uh, in Hamilton. Well, let's let's talk about the concept and the idea. And of course, what precipitated this in many cases were the removal of some. Well, the first of all, of the rebel flag, the Confederate flag, in many uh, southern states. Uh, then the Robert E. Lee statue, of course, in Charlottesville, and we saw the 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 riots that actually uh, uh, resulted from that, and President Trump's comments that there were good people on both sides, and et cetera. I don't, we don't want to go down that road necessarily, but you've mentioned that there has been, uh, I, I guess, a, a ripple effect up here in Canada as well, and and maybe a reevaluation. And and you've seen the stories, Terry, about uh, some people suggesting that uh, statues of Sir John A. Macdonald be taken down. Uh, because of his treatment uh, of uh, indigenous peoples during the construction of the railroad and and a number of other things, we could get into Louis Real and a whole lot of other things. Uh, but uh, how does this impact a city policy right now? Uh, I think you recorded as saying that you thought that the mayor had uh, the best of intentions in doing this, but it just seems to be too much of a hot button issue right now. Well, I mean, I did ask a number of questions, and it ultimately uh, led us to. Uh, 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 removal, and I guess the concern I have is uh, we in this community, for the most part, uh, and you you can certainly have your own experience, uh, live in harmony. We this community has rose when we had the Hindu uh, thing, uh, temple burnt um, uh, with a Muslim uh, 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 temple. There was a, a the fire bomb. The community rose. I mean, we, we, we come together, and I guess my concern is, is that, uh, yes, there's lots of wounds to be healed, and there's lots of uh, uh, work yet that needs to be done, and I'm not suggesting that, uh, um, that you know, we're uh, perfect. But uh, I believe that if we create a situation that becomes a ruling, uh, it can really create a, a divided community. Um, you know, I've all said before, everyone needs to do a, a look inward just to take a look and determine whether or not uh, their past is absolutely clean. Uh, I think I used the word, he who cast the first stone, uh, uh, if you have not sinned. Well, I, I think uh, there's a lot of inward thinking has to take place. 
But on the out, uh, looking forward, I think uh, it's clear that uh, we need to educate and through our educators or school system, maybe placking on, uh, on, on some of these uh, controversial statutes to ensure that, uh, that you know, part of the dark side is talked about as well, so it's part of that education. Um, but to suggest that, for example, McDonald didn't contribute to Confederation and that the, uh, the, 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 the dark side of what people are talking about is a reason for, for him not to be recognized in, uh, in history, I think that's a whole different debate, and, and I'm not sure if this community is uh, uh, wanting to have that debate uh, I think they want to move forward. I believe that uh, this community wants a, a comprehensive uh, process to ensure, like uh, I think it was Judge Leclerc from the Reconciliation uh, Committee said, this is not about removing things. This is about moving forward and ensuring that we um, recognize in the same way uh, diverse communities that have contributed to our country and ensure that uh, uh, we uh, treat them the same. So I think we've got a lot of work to do. How how do you approach this though? I mean, the, the the way that it was left, as I understand it, Terry, is is you said that city staff and, and I guess council ultimately, because it's going to be your decision one way or another. If a complaint comes forward, you're going to deal with this on a, on a one by one basis. But within what criteria? I mean, uh, you know, what is a quote unquote legitimate uh, beef about something? Is is it uh, two people? Is it ten people? Is it a hundred people? Uh, uh, you know, at some point, I guess you you. St- Notwithstanding what happened yesterday, you sort of have to make up some sort of a parameter, a set of rules here, so, so that you can, uh, you know, evaluate these these concerns by. Well, I mean, uh, that might be the narrative that uh, some would agree to. I, I, I don't know if I even want to open that Pandora's box. I think that uh, uh, a lot of the uh, the, the, the the art and and and, uh, and a lot of the uh, statues that we currently have um, uh, are rightfully in place and. To recognizing them for their positive contributions. Uh, so the question is, it, it, is, is that enough to uh, maintain uh, those statues and art in place? I, I, so I guess my, my belief is it is, and that if there is uh, a, a dark side to it, then we need to educate people on the dark side, and maybe that's the piece that we need to be working towards. So I think if the narrative is the outcome is that we, we're looking to have things removed. I'm not on for that. And that's that's the goal of some people. I, I understand that that may well happen. I know that uh, that Councillor Green was uh, quoted uh, as saying that he had a, a much different opinion of Sir John A. Macdonald than maybe a, many others would, uh, and and leveled some some concerns about uh, Macdonald's views on different things. Uh, and that that's a debate I guess some people may want to have. But I mean, for instance, if you're against colonialism and 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 you know British Empire, I mean, you're not going to like uh, Queen Victoria statue at the other end of Gore Park, are you? Uh, no, and on and on it goes. So it's, well, it, I mean, it can be very wait, subjective. What does it stop, Bill? I mean, the Catholic Church, the Inquisition, the Crusades. I mean, where does it stop? So I think we got to recognize that the lens we look through is a lens uh, of today. We have evolved as a people, and, and, and I'm proud to say that. Uh, we have stronger human rights that can always be improved on. Uh, we recognize that there's racism, and we're looking at ways to address those you know, issues ensure that the diverse community is being reflected. It's about not looking in the rearview mirror. It's about looking forward. And my concern is is that uh, if, you, you, if you provide um, an opportunity for uh, a minority uh, uh, groups coming forward to tear the, the soul and the heart of the history of this community out, 
it's going to do nothing but create division. There's a, so there's, I think we need to look forward to what we can do to ensure those diverse groups and organizations uh, be sensitive to their concerns and recognize uh, leaders in their own communities and their contributions to this country or to, to science or to other uh, uh, you know, great ventures. Um, it's about moving forward. It's not about hanging the past. I think, and I, and I don't think I was going to dispute, if you have uh, uh, them coming forward, so let's move uh, uh, the statue for Queen Victoria, there's going to be division. Is that what we want? Education is, is, and I know you've mentioned this a number of times, education has to be a major factor in this too, because there there are things that we need to learn. I mean, if you want to put this in a historical perspective, as, as I think some of your colleagues tried to do uh, at the meeting, Terry, I mean, and you want to talk about discrimination. Discrimination was rampant uh, in those days, uh, and against blacks, against indigenous peoples, against Catholics, against Jews. I mean, uh, and, and unless you were a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, uh, you know, whether Presbyterian or, or something, uh, you you didn't hold public office for the most part. I mean, there was all sorts of biases. I mean, we can talk about the shanty Irish uh, in the Corktown neighborhood in Hamilton and how uh, they were dumped on, and, and the Italians. And, I mean, everybody's got their story. Uh, and we do need to have that that information out there. We do need to talk about what was going on, and that. But at the same time, do you do you have to contrast that, or should we contrast that, with with the the city builders, the country builders, those that that yes, probably did uh, maintain and in some cases uh, embrace some of those biases. But at the same time, they did other things that were very constructive towards what we have now. Well, I think that the education is key, and whether or not we should. Continue consider in those uh, if there are concerns and complaints uh, in areas that uh, you know this is only rec- uh, recognizing an individual for all the positive contributions but this person was a, a racist or this person did X Y and Z uh, and if that's verifiable then maybe there's a, 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 a consideration in regards to that education component whether it's through plaquing historical plaquing etc I mean there, there are other ways to address these issues through education and again moving forward but I want to remind certain of your listeners that we're applying today's standards. And what we're trying to do is take a lens of today with our, the evolution of human rights and all those things. We're trying to apply it to a time that community standards were different. Laws were different. Human rights did not exist. It's a different framework, a different that took place in the time that some of these uh, uh, actions happened. So uh, understanding that we have evolved as a people, and, you know, and I'm proud to say that, uh, do we apply today's standards to what happened years and years and years and years ago? Well, then how do you deal with these issues? Because you know they're going to start coming up now. As, as you mentioned, there's been discussion already about the Sir John A. Macdonald piece. There's the artwork, of course, in uh, in the City Hall uh, that uh, was the focus of part of the discussion yesterday. How do you deal with those issues? And the, How do you deal with those who may find those those problematic and in some cases offensive, at least in their minds anyway? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I don't know if you've, you you saw that piece. Uh, I think it was described in the paper. I certainly went to take a look at it. Now, I am looking through a white man's eyes, uh, and so maybe there is a, an inherent uh, bias, but what I saw uh, was a father uh, uh, teaching his son how to use a bow and arrow to hunt. Uh, and there was a reflection of many different settlers of the time. Now, uh, I heard that they felt that was too stereotypical, um, in regards to the art, but this is art. So, um, and I guess we can always criticize art. I, I, so, I, you know, I, I don't know what the threshold is, though. And that's the danger. What, what thresholds do you create? 
when is the line crossed? How do you make those determinations? But those are the questions that uh, that I guess the mayor was trying to get answers to. And, and, and I don't know that you survived the discussion to the point where you could actually say, okay, now if somebody says, hey, I have a problem with such and such right now, you can say, okay, let's let's evaluate that and let's see this. Or do you just dismiss them and say, look, at if you don't like it, don't look at it? Well, right now we do. I mean, my understanding is we do have a process in place where uh, uh, that those complaints are forwarded to a particular division of the city. Uh, they're addressed, and, uh, and there are a number of uh, suggestions that come out of that process. And if the individual isn't happy with that, then they can appeal it like anything else to the council or committee. There, there is a committee, is there not, Terry? A, a, is a, a human rights or racism committee, a, a subcommittee? I, I know something along those lines that used to be in place a couple of years ago. Uh, well, we have a, a number of committees. You know, we've got an anti-racism type uh, committee uh, as well. Uh, we have uh, uh, equity, and I think it's probably got a different name to it now. But uh, yes, yes, it, it's covered from some. So are you no question. are you comfortable then that if somebody does come forward uh, in in you know following due process you know files all the appropriate and says look at I got a concern about this that there is a, a method that there is a way that the city can deal with this uh, and 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 evaluate the the concern that that person may present. Well, uh, you know, I've been a counselor for fourteen years, um, and I can tell you that I don't recall any of these issues arising. So. Uh, uh, if there's a suggestion that, uh, oh, maybe this question will encourage, but uh, all of a sudden we're going to be inundated with requests to remove arts and statues and so forth, uh, I think we, would, if that does happen, then uh, then maybe we need to revisit uh, uh, certain positions. But certainly that's not the case now. We have one complaint. Well, let me ask you about the mural because that was part of the discussion. That's the one we're talking about at City Hall that uh, that portrays the, uh, the the indigenous people, the father and son there, and that some people feel is is offensive. That's not a new mural, is it? That, that, that's been there for some time. No, that's actually got heritage protection. And this is the first that's time. The is, this, to my knowledge, is the first time somebody's complained about it. Correct. Timing is interesting, isn't it? Well, and I think what's happening is, is again, the heightened awareness and, and, and what's happening in the States. It's almost like we're looking for things. Uh, and I, I think if you look, uh, it's not too hard to find um, where errors are being made or where um, uh, there's been a, a, a portrayal of some individual or group or organization in a proper way. I mean, it's not hard to find these things. Uh, again, it's the context of time when these things were done and what was the community standards of the day. And, and obviously, when what goes on there, I, I'm not, I, I don't want to, and I don't want to belittle people's concerns about this because I think there can be some legitimate concerns. But again, you have to put this in perspective. I mean, did not St. Patrick's Church, if I get some criticism a few years ago, when they put the uh, that, that statue they've got on the front lawn there in front of the church? Yeah. Uh, about, about the yeah. homeless guy laying on the bench? Yeah. Yeah, and, and some people were quote unquote offended by that. Uh, so I mean, you know, your your point's well taken. Where do you draw the line in situations well, I mean, like that? Worker uh, 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 sculpture in front of City Hall, if you recall, and we had a lot of uh, uh, complaints about that as well. So I, I don't know where you start drawing lines, and I think it, it, it's, a, it's a dangerous situation to get into because it doesn't matter what you do, you will offend someone. In those, in that process, in def, you know, defining those thresholds, you will insult uh, a, a, a majority, or not majority, but certainly a certain population uh, of this community, one way or the other. And you might as well hang a shingle out and say, "Okay, 
we're going to divide this community because that's what I believe you'll end up doing, whether it's the Empire Loyalist groups or the Indigenous people or, or, or any other group. And I, I just don't know if we want to walk that road. How are you going to handle the next one? Council, I mean, not just you specifically, Terry, but council, because you know there's going to be others. Well, again, I think it's, it goes through the, uh, the, uh, the, the cultural uh, division uh, uh, with this original complaint. I think uh, the, the, just because it's complaint, I mean, I think they're going to have to provide uh, a profound argument in, in respect to why, why it offends, as opposed to you just don't like it, right? Uh, I mean, there's got to be some substance to it. And then uh, if, in fact, uh, uh, it can't be resolved through that particular staffing uh, group, then uh, uh, it would come to the appropriate committee or, or council uh, for you know, an appeal, if that's what the desire of that group or organization is, to pursue it. So there is a process in place. It always has been. And again, there's a certain amount of, of, of subjectivity in, in all of these things. I mean, there are... There are some stories about Sir John A. Macdonald. We know that he was the, the driving force, along with uh, Cartier, of course, with Confederation. Uh, we know uh, the, the work that he did. Uh, those of us that have taken the time to read history and study history understand that he had a lot of warts. Uh, there were a lot of things about Sir John A. Macdonald uh, that weren't very attractive. Uh, and, and, and maybe a lot of people don't know that. And in, in gaining that knowledge, all of a sudden think, well, is he, is he worthy of, of the reverence that he's been given as, as the father of Confederation. I mean, well, that's I the issue for me is that it, it's not about condoning uh, some of those positions. It's a recognition of his importance in, in bringing Canada together. And if that's not good enough in regards to the relevance uh, and the importance and, and his contribution in, in Canadian society, then we, we, we have a real problem. Well, and if somebody said, I want to erect a, station, or a statue to Sir John A. Macdonald because of the way that he, you know, he, he was responsible for the death of Indigenous people, I got a problem with that. That's the same as, as some Americans had a problem with honoring Robert E. Lee. You know, they say, well, he was a great general and, and, and served in the, uh, the American Army. Oh, then he turned, he was, became a traitor. I mean, you know, he went to, to fight to break up the country. That's a different situation. Uh, I guess it, you're right. To a certain point, part of the discussion needs to be why is this person being honored? And and I, I think we'll end this discussion the same way you brought it up. Please try to find me somebody who has been honored in such a fashion uh, that lived a pure life. I don't know that there's too many people that did that. Well, we, we, as you know, there's discussions about Gandhi. I think I've heard somewhere in some country, some university, uh, they they claim uh, he was a racist uh, with the Afro uh, uh, the African. Uh, uh, I think, yeah, look at what he achieved in regards to his contribution on, on the whole uh, peace discussion and, and address those kinds of uh, reconciliation. So, you know, like I said, I think uh, back to the old throwing the stone, I mean, even the people uh, making the criticism should maybe look at their own past and their own contributions or, and so forth. I think there isn't going to be any clear line. And again, I don't know how you draw the threshold to make any ultimate decision, and I think it'd be very controversial, and it wouldn't be uh, um, helpful uh, in regards to pulling and building bridges. It would actually uh, uh, create more division in the community, and I'd rather build bridges than tear bridges apart. Ward A. Councilor Terry Whitehead. Terry, thanks as always for the time. Appreciate it. Thank you. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.